This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, I'm Sarah Buckaloo. Thank you very much for coming. I'm um, sorry. Uh, I'm an adolescent medicine physician here at UCSF um, and the associate um, associate professor of pediatrics and the co-director of the eating disorder program here in the division of adolescent and young adult medicine uh, in pediatrics, as well as um, we're a program that also collaborates and works closely with the Department of Psychiatry. And I'm going to speak tonight about identification, early intervention, and prevention of eating disorders. My colleague and co-director who just joined us at UCSF will be speaking next week um, on treatment of eating disorders. So this talk is really focused more on identification, screening, um, early intervention, and prevention, uh, which is a little bit out of my normal topic uh, area that I speak about, because I tend to speak mostly about medical complications related to eating disorders. So this is a little bit different for me. So um, it was a pleasure to put this talk together. So tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about the identification of eating disorders, what are eating disorders, a bit about screening, then we'll talk about early intervention for eating disorders, uh, and prevention efforts, uh, which will cover a little bit about etiology, so why do eating disorders happen in terms of thinking about prevention, components of prevention, and future directions, because certainly prevention is an area that really can um, look to the future for more research and, um, and, and new directions. Uh, so a quote from Mary Pfeiffer, who wrote the book Reviving Ophelia, which is about um, adolescent girls, says that research shows that virtually all women are ashamed of their bodies. It used to be adult women, teenage girls who were ashamed, but now you see the shame down to very young girls, 10, 11 years old. Society's standard of beauty is an image that is literally just short of starvation for most women. And we'll be covering a lot of things related to body image um, as how it uh, is associated with eating disorders, and we'll also be talking some about um, young people. So in our clinical practice here, we see patients from about the age of 12 through 26. Um, that being said, we will see patients as young as eight, um, is the youngest that I've taken care of uh, with an eating disorder, and we're seeing more and more of the younger kids. So what are eating disorders? So I like to think of disordered eating as being along a spectrum, with healthy eating really being on one end of the spectrum and eating disorders being on the other end of that spectrum. So healthy eating is going to include that your, your energy intake is pretty in balance with your energy output. Um, so you have regular meals. Um, you may have fast food once in a while, but it's relatively limited. Um, less junk food, more water, more fruits and vegetables, um, that kind of thing. Eating disorders on the other end is extreme weight loss or gain. Uh, it's when we talk about a body mass index as being uh, very low, so less than the 5th percentile or greater than the 95th percentile, so in an unhealthy range on either end of the spectrum. It includes health complications related to eating. Um, it may include purging for weight loss. It also can include body distortion. And this is really what's associated with increased mortality on both ends. So um, with those that are, are 
extremely overweight or obese, as well as those who are extremely underweight. And anorexia nervosa actually has the highest reported mortality of the men of any mental health disorder, including depression, including schizophrenia, psychosis. Um, so this is really is a deadly disease. Um, disordered eating is probably where more people fit. Um, so intake may not equal output. It can include skipping meals. It can include chronic dieting. It may include restricting or limiting certain food groups and really considering them bad foods or forbidden foods or sort of putting a moral judgment on those foods. Um, so really thinking of disordered eating as a spectrum um, I think can be helpful. And what we're going to focus on tonight is really the eating disorders, so those extreme um, or more extreme cases. Um, so again, what do you think of when I say eating disorder? Um, and it certainly um, can be associated with a lot of thoughts. Whenever I tell people what it is I do, um, I think more than many other types of medicine, people always have an opinion about eating disorders or have had a personal context um, to put it in or um, have some other thoughts about why eating disorders may happen or um, what the treatment may be, um, which is, is just an interesting phenomenon. So... The face of eating disorders. Uh, there's been a reported lifetime prevalence of 5 to 6% of eating disorders in adolescents and young adults in the U.S. Um, anorexia is one of the most common chronic illnesses among adolescents. 80% um, of 13-year-olds have attempted to lose weight. So you can see with just um, dieting being so prevalent in our society that disordered eating can result from that. It incur occurs in all races, ethnicities, socioeconomic groups. There used to be a lot of myths or um, that eating disorders only happened in upper-class Caucasian populations. Um, certainly that's not true in our clinic sample and um, is not true um, anymore. If you look at the face of eating disorders, it really is a diverse um, group, and it occurs across all socioeconomic groups, all ethnicities, all races. Um, and it occurs in females as well as males. And what I'm talking about with eating disorders, um, primarily in our clinic, what we tend to see most of is anorexia nervosa, and I'll go through each of these, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder, which is probably the most common of the eating disorders. Um, there was a recent uh, Chronicle article that reported a study that said, you know, that binge eating disorder is quite high, um, up to 5% just for that disorder. Uh, previously in the DSM-4, which is the manual that describes um, how to make diagnostic criteria for these mental health disorders, uh, binge eating disorder didn't exist as its own separate phenomenon, so really its, its epidemiology hasn't been able to be studied um, because it was just part of a catch-all. So in the DSM-5, it now is its own diagnosis, which will hopefully help us better um, identify those people struggling with it as well. In our adolescent population, I would say we see less binge eating disorder um, than other um, of the other disorders. That's probably because patients with binge eating disorder are less likely to be referred to an eating disorder program, not that it doesn't exist, um, that they're just less likely referred. The patients that I've had who've been referred to me for binge eating disorder um, are, tend to be extremely severe, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. 
So what do you think of when I say eating disorder? I think anorexia nervosa, we kind of think about um, the person who is very thin, who thinks of themselves um, in a distorted manner, um, may consider themselves quite um, overweight, um, fat, um, despite their thinness. Um, they tend to have quite restrictive eating. Others sort of stereotypes that actually may have some truths is patients with anorexia nervosa are often thought of as perfectionist. Um, and most likely there is something associated with the brain of someone who gets anorexia nervosa and perfectionism, and something about those the brain actually is linked, and they're doing much more um, in studying this with functional MRIs, uh, particularly at UC San Diego uh, with Walter Kay's program. So the the criteria for anorexia nervosa include restriction of calories, um, restriction of energy intake relative to um, what their body, what their need, um, and especially considering their low body weight in the context of their age, their sex, their developmental trajectory. One change that was recently made when the DSM-5 was created, which was in 2013, um, is that there was a change in how the low weight was defined. So it is defined as a weight that is less than minimally normal or for children and adolescents less than minimally expected for that patient rather than giving it a firm number or less than a specific BMI, which used to be true. Um, An intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat, um, even though they are at a low weight, and then a persistent lack of recognition or denial in the way that they experience their weight of shape or the seriousness of their current low body weight. So in terms of that third criteria, you can imagine this is patients really lack an understanding um, of the seriousness of the problem. So most patients with anorexia nervosa, if you ask they really sort of experience this as there is no problem and that we, their family, their school, their providers are sort of making all of this something that it's not. So there tends to be a lot of denial about the problem, and that's actually one of the criteria. Um, So what do you think of when I say bulimia nervosa? I think we tend to think of people who purge. So um, purging is one of the criteria for bulimia nervosa. So bulimia nervosa under the DSM-5 includes um, recurrent episodes of binge eating, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that means in a second, and then some inappropriate compensatory behavior to prevent weight gain associated with that binge eating. So that could include self-induced vomiting, which I think is what most people think about when they think about bulimia nervosa. Um, it can also include misuse of laxative, diuretics, other medications, fasting, excess- excessive exercise. Both the binge eating as well as the inappropriate compensatory behavior have to happen at least once a week for three months. Um, Again, with the DSM-5, this was changed. It used to be at least twice a week for six months. So um, there's actually now more people who are diagnosed with bulimia nervosa than previously. Um, As well as self-evaluation is, again, unduly influenced by body shape and weight. and um, they cannot have anorexia nervosa. So you're either diagnosed with bulimia or anorexia, not with both. Patients with bulimia nervosa um, often tend to be at a normal weight, um, so they can be much more difficult to diagnose just based on their 
body weight and size. Um, so it's much more if they are willing to get help and seek help. I would say, unlike patients with anorexia nervosa, there isn't the same level of denial um, that there is a problem, but there's a much higher level of shame um, about the behavior that they um, are participating in um, that may limit their willingness to uh, get help. Um, and then binge eating disorder. Um, so binge eating disorder is uh, recurrent and persistent episodes of binge eating. And really, for it to be defined as binge eating, it has to include three or more of the following. And this is true for both bulimia as well as binge eating disorder. Eating much more rapidly than normal, eating until feeling uncomfortably full, eating large amounts of food when not feeling physically hungry, eating alone because of being embarrassed by how much one is eating, feeling disgusted with oneself, depressed or very guilty after overeating. And there has to be marked distress related to the binge eating. Um, in addition, there can be no compensatory behavior such as purging. And this must happen at least once a week for three months. So an example of one of my patients who, um, in, who was diagnosed with binge eating disorder would steal her parents' credit card, go to Target, buy hundreds of dollars worth of food, and sit in the car and eat. You know, we're talking about entire cakes, boxes of food at one time. So really a binge is, you know, more than having that extra piece of pizza. It's, it's having an amount of food that, that most people would consider to be an abnormally large amount. And oftentimes we have to clarify with patients uh, a subjective versus an objective binge. So I'll have many patients tell me, oh, I binged yesterday. And I will ask them, so what, what did the binge look like to you? And they may say, oh, I had a sandwich. Um, and to most people, a sandwich is not a binge. That's what you might eat with something else for your regular meal. But to many patients who are struggling with eating disorders, for them, that's that's a binge. So we would call that a subjective binge as opposed to an objective binge, which is what most of us in the room would consider a binge. So I mentioned that the DSM-5 sort of changed all these diagnostic criteria for eating disorders. And we used to have sort of this catch-all that in our clinic and in most adolescent programs was what most adolescent patients were diagnosed with, which was this catch-all where patients didn't quite meet all the criteria for any of these disorders, but clearly met some of them. Um, and it was called eating disorder NOS or EDNOS. And with the creation of the DSM-5, they changed that term and they changed it to be known as other specified feeding and eating disorders. So what was called EDNOS is now called OSFED. Um, and it included um, these other diagnoses, which include atypical anorexia nervosa, which I'll talk a little bit more about, subthreshold bulimia nervosa, subthreshold binge eating disorder, purging disorder, and night eating syndrome. So subthreshold bulimia and binge eating disorder are sort of self-explanatory. They don't quite meet all those criteria I just gave you. Um, may not be once a week. It may be once every other week or that kind of thing. Um, purging disorder includes patients who don't have the binging but have the compensatory behavior, just the purging. And night eating syndrome, you may have heard of, it's kind of people who really sort of wake up in the middle of the night and go and almost binge um, then. 
I do want to talk a little bit more about atypical anorexia nervosa, though, because I think this is the one that we're going to hear a lot more about in the future. Um, so atypical anorexia nervosa is that all criteria for anorexia are met, except despite significant weight loss, the individual's weight is within or above the normal range. So it's if you take a teenager who may be overweight or obese, and they drop rapidly large amounts of weight. And really, if you talk with them, they have the same thinking as someone who is very underweight from anorexia nervosa. So I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. I think if we think about sort of what EDNOS looked like, again, this was a, the largest number of our clinic samples. So you can see of an outpatient clinic, 50% um, of the patients that were referred to eating disorder treatment for outpatient care had EDNOS. And in inpatient, 40% had EDNOS. So that's larger than even the number of inpatients that were admitted for bulimia nervosa. So this was a really large part of the population. With the DSM-5, they sort of loosened the diagnostic criteria for anorexia and bulimia. So the thought is the number of patients actually diagnosed with anorexia and bulimia are going to go up, and that EDNOS number is going to go down um, because people are more easily diagnosed with that. But then what about atypical anorexia? Because those patients probably f were diagnosed with EDNOS before, and we have no idea of sort of what that population of patients is going to look like. And in some ways, it makes sense that this is a growing population, because if you think about adolescent obesity has tripled over the last 20 years, 15% of U.S. teens are overweight, associated medical complications have increased significantly among youth. We see much more, you know, dyslipidemia, we see type 2 diabetes, we see, you know, all of these medical complications where doctors are telling teens, you need to lose weight, you need to lose weight, because um, pediatricians have been charged to fight this battle. And we see it all around us, right, um, that these kids are, are overweight. So we're looking now at this, this atypical anorexia group. And one study showed that about 30% of patients presenting to eating disorder programs like ours probably meet the criteria for atypical anorexia. So they may look normal weight. They still have the mindset of someone with anorexia nervosa. Um, as opposed to a sample of anorexia patients, those who had who were overweight to begin with, this atypical anorexia, if they lost more than 25% of their premorbid weight, they are the most medically compromised. They are the patients that we are seeing who are presenting the sickest. So it may not be the thinnest patients who are the sickest, but it's those patients who have lost the most drastic amount of weight over time. Um, and there can be a lot of challenges for medical providers in identifying these patients and managing them. So it may take a lot longer. The pediatrician may first say, great job. Wow, you lost that weight that we've been working on for so long. You know, keep up the hard work, not recognizing that these patients are starving themselves. Um, so clinicians really need to have a heightened awareness that eating disorders can happen at any weight. And this just kind of gives you an idea of what we're talking about. So this, this first growth chart here is sort of a growth chart of a patient that we may see who presents with anorexia. So they were sort of growing along their 50th percentile, right where they were supposed to be, and then they lost all this weight, and now they're at the 5th percentile. 
This next growth chart shows you a patient who may have been overweight to start with, so above, way above the 95th percentile. And this, this <clears throat> growth chart was actually taken from a case study that was published in pediatrics about atypical anorexia. And you can see how much this patient lost. So comparatively, this patient lost you know, this much as opposed to, you can see how different those arrows are. So it took this second patient, this atypical anorexia patient, much, much longer to be identified, much, much longer to be diagnosed, and had significant medical complications associated with the amount of weight loss they had, which was just too extreme over too short a period of time. All right, so we're gonna talk a little bit about um, identification and a little bit about um, risk factors. So the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that patients be screened, particularly patients who may have risk factors for eating disorders, um, need to be screened regularly. So some of the risk factors that have been identified with eating disorders include sort of temperamental factors, such as perfectionism for anorexia, which I mentioned before, um, early puberty, um, so if you think about an adolescent whose shape is changing more rapidly than their peers, that may influence their, you know, may lead to dieting or another desire to change their shape. Um, failed attempts to lose weight is also a risk factor. Um, dieting in and of itself is a risk factor. Um, antecedent illness with weight loss. So I'll have, I've had a number of patients describe this over the years where uh, they tell me that, um, they got a stomach flu and they lost a whole bunch of weight because of that and everyone told them how great they looked and it just sort of spiraled from there. Um, an abnormally low weight um, to begin with, certain food rituals, um, social withdrawal and avoiding meals with others. Um, frequently, uh, this will be described to me by parents uh, as my daughter decided to become a vegetarian so she could no longer eat what we were serving as the family. So she started to eat in her room what she had prepared for herself. And I don't have anything against vegetarianism, but when it's sort of a socially acceptable way of restricting um, and not eating what the rest of the family is eating, then it can be concerning. Um, certain athletics, particularly sports that focus on shape or weight, um, you can think about this with you know, ballet or with gymnastics or uh, wrestling or other sports that have you make weight. Um, excessive exercise in general, evidence of purging, preoccupation with food, eating and exercise. Uh, this, I often ask patients when I see them how, what percentage of their time they're spending thinking about food, um, if it's affecting their concentration at school, if it's affecting their interactions with their friends. Um, some of my patients will tell me 95 to 100% of their day is filled with thinking about food. Um, so that preoccupation is certainly concerning. Um, a family history, physical signs such as amenorrhea or loss of menses um, is very concerning and used to be in the DSM-IV, uh, but that was taken away because it was the only sort of medical criteria that was in any of the mental health diagnoses, so they got rid of it. Um, coldness, dizziness, we'll have a lot of patients who will be referred to us for um, overexercise, et cetera. And identifying some of the patients who sort of have early eating problems, so patients who have significant uh, pickiness. Um, we're seeing that more and more with patients who um, may have certain textures that they've always avoided. Um, 
We'll also see patients who have swallowing or vomiting phobias uh, and then decrease what they're eating related to that, um, even at a young age. Um, I had a patient once referred to me because he had been eating um, a taco that he got at like a taco truck and there was a piece of um, like a toothpick or a piece of wood that was in the meat and it got stuck in his tonsil and so his dad had to go in and and pull it out and he wouldn't he wouldn't eat after that because he was so afraid of that Um, so we'll see sort of these vomiting phobias or other phobias um, related to eating as well and I'm not sure how well this slide came up, but this was a study actually done by Dr. LaGrange, who you'll hear from next week, um, who talked about um, models of um, developmental correlations that may be associated with increased disordered eating attitudes and behaviors. And one of the interesting ones is related to just persistence. So those very persistent three- to four-year-olds, seven- to eight-year-olds have been shown to be more... um, have a higher rating of these abnormal eating attitudes and behaviors. And that may be some of that perfectionism is that persistence um, that you see even from a young age. Um, And I'll have a lot of families describe that, um, uh, that characteristic of their child. Um, Depression developed in uh, in late childhood and early early adolescence has been shown to be associated. Um, One of the things that's interesting that he showed that was associated was um, peer relationships which previously it was thought that kids who had stronger peer relationships actually were less likely to develop eating disorders. Um, But Dr. LaGrange's work uh, that was published this year showed um, the opposite, um, which is interesting just in thinking about, you know, that strong peer attachment um, not being protective and and is it that they're strongly associated with peers who also have abnormal eating behaviors and what's the correlation with that Um, mother dieting in early adolescence is shown to have more abnormal eating attitudes and behaviors and then again early or late puberty also shown to have more abnormal eating attitudes and behaviors so some of the things that we have thought So how do we approach weight and body image with teens? So in terms of uh, screening. And again, the importance of screening is underscored that about, this was an adult study showed that half of all eating disorder cases go undetected in primary care. So you can imagine patient with anorexia don't feel like there's a problem, so they're not going to offer anything necessarily. Um, And patients with bulimia may feel such shame. Patients with binge eating disorder may feel such shame that they also aren't going to offer anything. So really trying to think about screening questions that may give you an idea that there's a problem so you investigate further is important. That being said, providers are all asked to screen for just so much stuff um, that frequently this isn't thought of necessarily as a priority. Um, So the SCOF is a screener that has been validated and looked at in a number of different clinical samples and is is the one that's recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, And it's basically looking at, have you been doing anything to change your weight? So it stands for, have you ever made yourself sick or throw up to lose weight? Have you ever eaten a lot of food at once in a way that you felt out of control and couldn't stop? 
Have you recently lost more than one stone? It's British. That's how it got that. Um, 14 pounds in three months. Do you think you're fat when others don't? And would you say food dominates your life? And two um, answer, two positive answers to this or more is a recommendation for further investigation or further follow-up. Another thing that's important for clinicians to look like, particularly for adolescents and also for um, children, is um, the body mass index, and at least following that um, over time. So plotting height, weight, body mass index at each visit and looking for any red flags. And also using the growth chart to talk with patients and their families about pubertal changes as well as normal growth and development. You know, that we do expect weight gain through adolescence and that's that's normal, part of your body changing and developing. We wouldn't necessarily expect it to stay the same or certainly for you to drop. Bright Futures is sort of the preventive um, screening guidelines for pediatricians, um, and it has just a number of different recommendations on how to screen for various things, including eating patterns and nutrition. Um, The questions that they recommend pediatricians ask during preventive visits include, how often do you skip meals, to ask, their recommendations are actually like, what do you usually eat for dinner? I don't know about you, I find that a really super hard question. I don't know what I usually eat for dinner. It varies. Um, So for me, I I change that a little bit to doing a 24-hour recall and asking patients, what did you have for dinner last night, which at least gives me a better idea um, of what that might look like. Um, Do you ever feel guilty or embarrassed by how much you eat? How do you feel if you miss a day of exercise? Have you ever taken laxatives or diet pills? And Bright Futures also has questions about body image that they recommend that pediatricians ask everyone during their preventive visits, which include how do you feel about the way you look? How do you feel about your weight? Are you trying to change your weight? How? Have you ever dieted? Why? How do you know to tell? How do you tell if you're too thin or too heavy or just right? And how do you feel right now? And a lot of this is trying to also get at um, dieting. So you know, teen females who report moderate or severe dieting were found more likely than non-dieters to develop an eating disorder. Dieting itself is frequently implicated in the pathogenesis of eating disorders, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, a third to a half of adolescent girls and boys diet. Um, so asking about it can be really important just to know what kids are doing because it also increases their own negative self-evaluation and their concerns about their shape if they're actively trying to change that. Um, in addition, in teens, dieting has been found to actually lead often to weight gain rather than loss, and girls who diet are 12 times as likely to binge eat. Boys who diet are seven times as likely to binge eat. So it's kind of that restricting, 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 oh, I need something now, I'm starving, and, and binging um, out of control. Um, And then Bright Futures recommends talking about physical activity. So do you regularly participate in physical activity? If so, what do you do? How often? How much screen time do you spend per day? And how do you feel if you miss a day of exercise? So one thing I will say just in relation to screening is we will have a lot of patients referred to us um, because... There's some concern about a possibility of an eating disorder from someone, and what I usually say and what others say is that 
if people are really suspecting the possibility of an eating disorder, even if you talk with the patient and you're not sure because you, you just don't get very much on the screening, it is likely that there's something going on. Because um, where there's smoke, there's typically fire in relation to this. And, and a lot of that is just because of the complexity of the symptoms and, again, the denial. Um, so if symptoms are denied, you still have to have a high index of suspicion. And oftentimes, if we're referred a patient or a family, and we kind of can't get any data that really is supporting an eating disorder, but yet we're not totally reassured there's not, we'll still recommend that they follow up in a couple of months. We'll try and check in and make sure that it isn't that something's just developing then. So moving on to a little bit about early intervention. So first I would say any intervention is an important one. Again, because of the complexity of these diseases, um, only one in 10 men and women with eating disorders actually receive treatment. Um, there's a numerous barriers to treatment, some of which I've already described, and that isn't even talking about insurance barriers and other barriers. Um, and only 35% of people that receive treatment for eating disorders get treatment at a specialized facility or with a specialized um, treatment program or plan. We do have research that shows us that early intervention helps prognosis. Um, early detection and prompt intervention may prevent as much as two-thirds of patients from developing something more serious. Um, some of this data came from some of the family therapy trials that Dr. LaGrange is going to describe next week um, from the 1980s at the Maudsley Hospital in London. Um, because what we do know is that inadequately treated eating disorders persist. And if the effective treatment isn't given within the first three years of illness onset, that the outcome is poor. Um, we know that um, inadequately treated anorexia persists for a number of different reasons. Um, starvation may contribute to it persisting. Stress can contribute it to it persisting. Um, but also, especially with adolescents, if you think about brain development in a starved, stressed state, that also can, you know, cause significant problems and persistence of these disorders. And, you know, we would expect that through adolescence, uh, there's maturation of the prefrontal, prefrontal areas, which are some of the areas that are responsible for self-regulatory control. And so... The balance between reflection, risk-taking, impulsive behaviors is all in a state of flux. So poor nutrition, hormonal changes, all of these things may cause persistence of these disorders if there's not adequate treatment. And part of that is weight restoration, particularly in anorexia. There's been limited research, but trying to get an understanding of what are the prognostic factors of who are the patients who do well with eating disorders. Um, particularly, this has been looked at with anorexia. Um, one of the big prognostic factors that we hear a lot about is that longer duration of illness before treatment is a negative prognostic factor. It's interesting to think about because I think often that we think 
you know, the younger a patient is diagnosed with anorexia, oh, wow, that's, that's so severe. You know, this 12-year-old was diagnosed with anorexia as opposed to the 17-year-old being diagnosed with anorexia. The 12-year-old's going to have the better outcome, most likely because their duration of symptoms before diagnosis was shorter as opposed to that 17-year-old who may have had symptoms since they were 12. They just weren't picked up until they were 17. So a longer duration of illness before treatment um, is a negative uh, factor in anorexia. A longer duration of treatment um, as well is a negative uh, risk factor. Um, a need for inpatient treatment, so when patients are so medically compromised that they need inpatient treatment, that's probably a negative prognostic factor from the data that we have, um, and purging and anorexia. Um, so the patients who are exceptionally underweight and in addition to that purge, um, we don't know why this is a negative prognostic factor, but it clearly is that those are the patients who really struggle the longest and the most. In terms of rates of complete recovery, um, they really vary. Um, studies say, you know, between 45 to 75 percent of patients completely recover. Um, early diagnosis, again, is thought to improve outcomes. Um, the data is still limited. Usually one of the things I will tell families is there's no quick fix. Um, treatment takes a long time. On average, it takes about two years. Um, and improvement in symptoms can take, like I said, up to two years. We really do worry, as I mentioned, that three-year mark, five-year mark is, is what we really um, worry about the most in terms of prognosis. So patients who've had their eating disorder for more than five years, their chance of overall recovery um, drops significantly. Um, I heard one psychiatrist liken it to if he had an adult person call him and say, you know, I've, I've had anorexia for 15 years um, or 20 years, um, that he likens that to somebody calling their oncologist and saying, I've had this brain tumor for 20 years, that really um, the prognosis is quite poor. So I would say, you know, this is the Society for Adolescent Medicine position paper, don't be afraid to treat. So because of the potentially irresistible irreversible effects of an eating disorder on physical and emotional growth and development in adolescents because of the risk of death and because of the evidence suggesting improved outcomes with early treatment, the threshold for intervention in adolescents should be lower than in adults. And again, that's part of that where there's smoke, there's fire. We're going to keep following those kids to make sure that, that they aren't developing something to make sure that we're, we're catching it um, because we don't want them to become the chronic adult patient whose prognosis is poor. And one of the things that we will tell um, clinicians if I'm talking to uh, a group of pediatricians or other clinicians, referral to treatment is better if done early. Again, if you have concern, having an assessment done. That being said, it can create insurance challenges. You know, if, if someone doesn't have a full-blown disorder, sometimes the insurance doesn't want to cover a referral to a specialist um, for an assessment of that. So we try and find ways to work through that, but it can be challenging. 
And part of, you know, part of why we go through all of this is acute malnutrition is a medical emergency. And I mentioned before that usually I talk about the medical complications associated with eating disorders, so this talk is a little bit different for me. Um, but I do want to stress anorexia has a high associated mortality. Um, some studies report it as being as high as 10%. Um, Probably one in five of those at least is suicide. Suicide is the number one reason people with anorexia die, um, and cardiac death is up there as well. So this is a horrible disease. Um, I have several patients who unfortunately have had both anorexia and cancer diagnoses. I've had parents tell me that cancer was so much easier than my child having anorexia. And part of that is when your child has cancer, your community supports you. Your community does everything they can to make your family feel supported and um, maybe you know bring food, et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately, anorexia and mental health disorders are often associated with stigma. Families are unwilling to share what they're going through. People don't know how to respond. They don't know how to support. And so instead, families feel isolated. So these, they're horrible diseases that hopefully early identification can help with. Uh, the medical complications are severe. Again, they can be cardiac in nature. We have patients who are hospitalized related to caloric restriction. You can also see complications related to purging. Also can be cardiac related. Um, and then refeeding syndrome as well. So prevention. Um, so I believe that prevention has to be associated with etiology. So we have to know why something happens in order to help prevent it. Unfortunately, I don't know that we know exactly why eating disorders happen. That's why there's this big question mark uh, related to etiology. So what we do understand is that the etiology for eating disorders is multifactorial. So there is certainly a genetic and a biology component. Genes absolutely play a role in the etiology of eating disorders. Um, they may be you know, related up to 50 to 80% of it may be associated with some genetic factors. That being said, we don't have a gene yet that we've identified that's related to eating disorders. There's certainly individual factors and characteristics, like I've mentioned, uh, with perfectionism with anorexia, as well as other ones related to bulimia. There may be some familial influences. I would not blame families at all, um, but there may be some influence for certain families uh, related to the etiology of eating disorders, environmental factors, and then societal influences. And I think that often we go to sort of the societal influences as, as the reason behind eating disorders, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But more teens itself are exposed to the same societal influences who don't develop eating disorders, so we can't say that solely to blame. So I kind of think of it as the perfect storm. It's, it's like that one kid who has the genetics, has the family, has this the school has the temperament, has those qualities, as well as the societal influences that may all put together, you know, create this storm of an eating disorder. Um, there was a, there is a biopsychosocial model, particularly for anorexia, again, which is sort of associated with these biological factors, the genetic predisposition, certain psychological factors, traits, perfectionism, fear of maturity, um, family influences that can lead to body dissatisfaction, which can lead to 
pursuit of thinness. And then we also know that dieting and weight loss and malnutrition causes brain changes. And that can also further perpetuate this cycle. So, you know, one of the things I'll often talk to patients about is we know anxiety increases when you're starved. It makes evolutionary sense, right? If you're starving, you're going to be anxious. When am I going to get that next meal? When am I going to... Uh, to feed myself, it would kind of, if you were a cave person, it would get you up in the middle of the night to hunt um, if you were starving. So it evolutionary makes sense that if you're starving, you're going to be more anxious and, and um, also more depressed. Um, and those changes can all be reversible with nutrition. So there definitely are perpetuating factors in that uh, cycle. Um, over the last probably 15 years, there have been a number of successful eating disorder prevention programs. Prior to 2000, there was very limited data about prevention for eating disorders. Um, But in 2014, there was a review that showed at least 60 different programs and that a number of them actually demonstrated some success. Um, The programs tend to target certain risk factors. They tend to target that um, the thin ideal um, internalization. They may target uh, perceived pressures to be thin, uh, body dissatisfaction, self-reported dieting, depressive symptoms. Uh, Most looked at how do we reduce current symptoms and how do we prevent new symptoms from developing. The programs that um, were shown to be successful tended to have some theory that drove how they implemented their program. They tended, again, to target certain eating disorder risk factors, and they were delivered across multiple group sessions. So it wasn't just sort of one and done. Uh, It tended to be group uh, programming. And the, the successful programs really had content related to what is healthy eating and nutrition, what is uh, media literacy, which we'll talk a little bit more, and how do you um, handle society, society's pressures, um, and then some is related to body acceptance and body satisfaction. So those were the most um, common content that was shown to have a successful prevention program. Um, so what is healthy eating? I'm always um, interested to learn what my patients have learned about nutrition in school, Um, and I'm always interested that they trust their teachers way more than they trust, like, our nutritionist. We'll have the nutritionist in the room with them trying to develop a plan just for them and their body, and they don't trust anything they say compared to what they learned at school, um, which tends to be that teens don't need very many calories. It's kind of based on what adults may need, which is very different than what teens may need. and that certain food groups are bad when they aren't bad. Um, So teaching teens about what healthy eating is, so learning how to eat when you're hungry, eating till satisfied, eating a wide variety of foods, eating regular meals and snacks, eating from all food groups to ensure adequate nutrients, um, not being afraid to eat foods that have fat in them. One of the things, they redid the food pyramid a while ago, and they made it into this plate model, and they took out fats um, because they said that the regular American diet had enough fat in it that they didn't need to put it in the food pyramid anymore. What a lot of my patients say is fats are bad. They're not even in the food pyramid. So um, clearly there's some messaging about things. Um, Trying to teach teens about not 
needing to count calories or grams of fat, um, and not eating just because of boredom, sadness, loneliness, or joy. And also teaching teens that healthy nutrition promotes optimal growth. So during puberty is when you have your highest percentage of your skeletal growth. Um, what I'll often tell teens is now's the time that your bones are going to get heavier. They're going to get stronger. They're more dense. Once you're past 25, um, you're done. Your bones are done forming. So now's when you need um, to see that weight gain. That's weight gain that you can't actually see, but it is changes in your body that are good for your health. Um, there's also changes in body fat, muscle composition, um, and it's also a big time of brain development. And one of the things I think that my patients get sick of me saying is, you know, when you have a baby who's between sort of one and two and they're starting with milk, that we as pediatricians recommend that they have whole milk. And the reason that we do that is because babies need fat for their brain development. And adolescence is, after infancy, the biggest period of brain development in our lifespan, and so they need fat for brain development. Uh, they also need glucose. That's what the brain works on. It works on sugar and it works on fat. Um, what we really try and do, again, is to focus on nutrition for health as opposed to nutrition for weight. Um, and then media literacy. So more and more schools, more and more programs um, are developing programs uh, related to media literacy. Um, and again, I would say not all those exposed to media images develop eating disorders, but we do know that, that it can increase body dissatisfaction and increase drive for thinness. Um, and more and more studies are looking at media literacy as a way to try and reduce risk factors for eating disorders. So being aware of the images that we see. And this is an example. Um, every ad we see now is photoshopped, right? There is not an ad out there, basically, that is not photoshopped. So this is just one example. This is the model before the photoshop and after. You can see lots of changes to her body. The images that we see just aren't real anymore, um, and this is, you know, more and more true. So this is the Dove campaign. I'm going to see if I can get it to come up. Um, this was a video that was put out, and they actually did a study looking at it. Um, and the study examined whether a video intervention of this clip that I'm going to show you can actually protect adolescent girls from negative media exposure. So they took two groups. Um, and they took one of the groups and they showed them this video prior to showing them pictures of models. Um, and the other group, they just showed the pictures of models. So the video um, was actually found to, um, it was shown in the absence of the video that looking at the pictures of models was associated with lower body satisfaction and lower self-esteem, as opposed to those who watched the video before looking at them, it prevented this negative effect. Of course, that was in the short term.
again, every image that we see is distorted this way. Um, so nothing that we see in magazines is, is real anymore. Um, and then there's the new sort of overwhelming um, influence of social media. So a study that was done uh, by the Center for Eating Disorders at Shepherd Pratt looked at Facebook users between the ages of 16 and 40 um, and asked them about, uh, about Facebook in terms of how it affected how they feel about themselves, about their bodies. 51% um, said that seeing photos of themselves on Facebook made them more conscious about their own weight and body. 32% said they felt sad when they compared their photos to their friends' Facebook photos. 44% um, said they wished they had the same body or weight as a friend when looking at photos on Facebook. And 37% said they feel they need to change specific parts of their body when they compare themselves to their friends on Facebook. So. You can imagine that now adolescents just have this constant stream of negative self-evaluation. Um, they had some quotes of some of the, the teens that they interviewed included people saying things like, people get positive attention in the world by losing weight. You can do it to an even greater extent on Facebook. It's only the standard beauty who gets the likes. Um, when looking at images of girls in a magazine, almost all of us know that they are altered electronically to appear perfect. When it comes to social media, such as Facebook, most believe they are looking at raw pictures or real girls. Whether this is true or not, they're ultimately used as a standard of comparison. So teens are constantly comparing themselves um, and constantly have um, the means to do that. And there's this whole world of thinspo or thinspiration. So on various social networking um, sites, um, things like Instagram, Tumblr, um, these sites that teens go to um, where you can put in a hashtag and find all kinds of um, concerning images. Um, one of the ones that I've heard about recently, patients striving for a thigh gap. Um, and this is actually an ad from Target where they, they used Photoshop to create a thigh gap, but basically took you know, a big chunk of her anatomy out um, to make something that's like a doll. Um, and then there's a new one that's like the bikini bridge, uh, which is sort of this line. So um, there's images on all social and other media. And body image really is a multi-dimensional construct, um, including cognitive, affective, evaluative, and behavioral aspects of physical appearance. And I talk about social media as sort of this new way, um, but really we've had sort of um, American body ideals that have been unattainable for a, a very long time. So these are sort of old pictures. If you look at 1900s and 1910s and female American ideals, these were the corsets um, that really could cause health damage um, to create this exceptionally hourglass figure. Um, in the 1920s, uh, there was the flapper, which was meant to be this boyish, androgynous youth with minimal breasts, a straight figure. It's sort of opposite to the corseting. Um, uh, and there was really more of a dieting and exercise fad to sort of obtain this ideal. Um, changes in the 50s uh, with, you know, uh, Marilyn Monroe, the busty, voluptuous hourglass look. Um, and then sort of through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, the 60s was twiggy, um, where again, there was this very, very thin ideal. 
the 1970s, um, Farrah Fawcett, also Karen Carpenter, who was who died uh, of her eating disorder um, related to uh, Ipecac, um, and then Jane Fonda and sort of this new exercise, uh, thin ideal. Um, and in the 1990s, it was sort of Kate Moss and heroin chic, and it was really as thin as you could get look. Um, and Kate Moss is quoted as saying, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. And men have not been immune to it either. So if you think about Superman, the 1960s action figure, as opposed to the 2005 cartoon, where you can see there's like even sort of muscles in the cape. Um, and then G.I. Joe, sort of the original, and then today. Um, this is just from a, a G.I. Joe comic book. Um, and currently we have we have some role models that have a more voluptuous figure. Um, at the same time, there is not a bit of body fat um, on those ideals. And this ad was interesting because actually Beyonce came out against H&M, who uh, manufactured this ad because she said that they had photoshopped it and she did not want her image to be um, photoshopped for this campaign. So um, she actually um, uh, came out against it. Um, but you would see that there are very few overweight or fat women who are de depicted favorably in our popular culture. Um, and this one really um, strikes home for me. So this is from Frozen, and this is what, what um, Elsa, who's the queen in Frozen, looks like. And you can see she has an exceptionally thin waist. Um, and this was an image that was created to say, what would Disney princesses look like with real waists and real body types? Um, because again, females from a very young age are um, brought up with these unattainable images of, of what beauty looks like. And I think for me, this one rang too close to home because this is my daughter um, who was dressed up as Elsa for Halloween. So, um, and there were many Elsas out there. So these are the images that four-year-old girls are getting of what beauty looks like. So there's more future directions for prevention programs. I think what we are lacking still is models of universal prevention programs addressing the needs of both boys and girls of both genders um, <clears throat> to try and do more targeted early detection and intervention programs, to try to extend programming to a broad spectrum of weight problems and a wider age range, and to really continue to strive to demonstrate that these programs are efficacious, effective, and can be implemented in a sustainable way, that they can continue in schools and that kind of uh, thing. And the other thing else I will say is that what parents say does matter. Um, so for younger kids and for teens, encouraging parents to be good eating role models. So um, trying to not advocate dieting, not advocate meal skipping, that there aren't good foods or bad foods. Foods don't have a moral judgment, right? Um, eating together as a family um, is thought to be protective in terms of protecting against overweight, may have some role in terms of eating disorders. To avoid weightism, uh, which is really talking negatively about people based on their weight or their body shape. Um, 
to try to avoid discussions of guilt-induced exercise, uh, which means, you know, saying, oh, I had that cookie. I guess I need to go to the gym and work it off. So trying to avoid those kinds of comments um, to try and avoid complaining about their own weight, um, which really um, has been shown to increase um, disordered eating among youth. Um, and to compliment children on their non-physical attributes. Again, adults who reported that their childhood family members dieted or were critical about their own shape, weight, or eating are at increased risk for bulimia and binge eating disorder. So what parents say matters. So in summary, we still have a lot to learn um, about all of this. We know screening is important. We know because of the nature of these diseases that cases are often missed. We have data that shows that early identification and intervention does improve outcomes um, and that prevention needs to be multifaceted, but we still need more research um, and evaluation about prevention efforts um, to really have them uh, be the most effective. Right, so now I will open it up for if people have questions. Yep, good question. So the question was, when I'm practicing, how much access do I have to the actual children or how much um, are parents in between uh, them and me? So um, typically at our visits, um, we will meet uh, with parents and the patient together um, to try and get some understanding of what's going on. Uh, then we always have the parent leave and we speak with the patient on their own. And then it's also helpful for us to speak with the parents on their own uh, because it can be really helpful if we're getting two totally different stories. Um, so, um, so we always have access to the patient on their own um, and we typically have access to the parents on their own as well. So um, two questions. The first was the diagnostic criteria for adults. So the diagnostic for adolescents and adults are the same. Um, so there really are no differences uh, in that. Um, they did try to specify more uh, in the DSM-5 uh, for children that it may be that not that you're seeing so much weight loss, but you're not having the same weight gain that you would predict for a child. Um, Whereas adults, obviously, that's not the same. Um, that the second question uh, is a trickier one. So the question about what happens as patients transition from adolescent uh, to adulthood. And that's um, an exceptionally challenging question, as you can imagine, related to um, some of the insidiousness as well as some of the um, uh, denial or lack of understanding or motivation for treatment uh, that's associated with these disorders. So when we have patients who are under 18, um, their parents can mandate their treatment. Um, their parents can put them in the hospital, kicking and screaming, um, just as they might kick and scream if they had to have their appendix out and didn't want to miss school. It's Their parents are going to put them in. Uh, when they turn 18, uh, it's a whole different ballgame. Um, so uh, patients frequently will drop out of treatment. It can be exceptionally difficult to get them treatment uh, when they turn 18. Um, we have had patients who have been um, placed on conservatorship um, so that they have someone else, be it a parent or someone appointed by the court, to make uh, health decisions for them because of the nature of their illness. They are unable to make um, health decisions for themselves um, and unable to care for themselves. Um, those are the most challenging of cases, I would say. Those are patients who have really demonstrated that they are 
um, quite, quite ill. Um, occasionally, patients can be placed on involuntary holds uh, for 72 hours, like a 5150. Um, those are typically not successful. Patients will be hospitalized for three days um, and then discharged, and you really haven't gotten anywhere except that maybe you've broken your alliance with the patient if you had an alliance with them, um, which may make it even more difficult for them to get treatment. So adults really have to, to for the most part, um, seek treatment on their own. Um, with young adults, sometimes it can be a little bit easier because they may still be dependent on their parents for um, financial, things like college, that kind of thing. So we've had parents who, you know, have threatened, we're not going to pay for college if you don't get treatment. So there can be um, situations like that. So thank you. That's a complicated question. Yeah. So it's a good question. Um, so the question is, and I'm going to try and paraphrase it for the um, uh, in terms of my comments about um, judgment for for about food and a good food and a bad food, and then how how has that been brought into sort of the educational arena in terms of what kids um, are learning? Right. You're looking for that nutrition for the health right. aspect. Yes. So I would say um, nutrition for health um, is can be a complicated concept. Um, you know, and I think that schools, um, in particular, don't always do the greatest of jobs at it. Um, you know, we have mandatory um, BMI report cards in many states. So basically, what that is is that kids get weighed and measured at school, and um, they get sent home a report card saying whether or not their body mass index is in an acceptable range, or if they meet criteria for overweight or underweight. Um, which is really, again, increasing negative um, self-evaluation of weight. Um, at some high schools here in the city, your BMI is actually um, used to calculate whether or not you can pass physical education. There's six criteria that get you to pass physical education requirement, and BMI is one of, of the six. I think you have to have three. So, um, so I would say overall... Um, it's still a challenging issue. I feel like there's a lot of, of things that are still taught in school related to nutrition um, that don't necessarily go along with sort of nutrition being about health. Even though nutrition typically falls in health class, it still necessarily isn't um, as um, accurate of information as I would like a lot of patients to get. I mean, I have a lot of teens tell me things that they've learned in school in their nutrition block that are just completely false. Um, and they may be true for a 60-year-old in terms of what a 60-year-old should eat, but they're not true for what a 16-year-old should eat. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, that's the question, I would comment, um, was just in relation to should kids be learning what their body needs from a health perspective um, in terms of what they're doing, in terms of how they may be using energy in their body, um, and absolutely. And what I frequently will tell kids is you have a nutritionist here in our clinic who knows you, knows what you do, knows what energy you need to support that, knows what your nutritional needs are. That's much more um, correct information than anything you may get from the internet or from health class or because it's tailored for you. So I think, you know, having teens learn, you know, I would much rather teens learn about 
um, the positive impact of calcium for teens when their bones are developing and that kind of thing, rather than opposed to, you know, you need X amount of calories. Because obviously what one teen needs who's doing cross-country is different from what another teen needs, depending on where they are in puberty and what their activity level is, et cetera. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I think as providers, we need to be careful about the messages that we send about nutrition and weight. And I think um, the whole generation of atypical anorexia as a criteria for me has been um, very helpful because I feel like we're going to have more research that shows what to do with some of these patients. I mean, I had a patient who was quite overweight who told me that his pediatrician jokingly told him, and I'm not sure that this actually happened or if this was just how he perceived it, but jokingly told him he would be okay if he didn't eat for a year. And that's what the kid heard and took it to heart. Excellent question. So how complex is it to treat an eating disorder when it's comorbid with another mental illness? Um, So I'm going to leave some of that to Dr. LaGrange for next week, since he's going to be focusing on treatment, um, and he's a psychologist. um, So he can talk about that. Um, It can be very challenging for sure. Um, I think... You know, probably the most common comorbid illnesses we see with anorexia nervosa include depression and anxiety, um, and OCD as part of anxiety. Uh, It's important for us to try and tease out were those mental health um, conditions there before the eating disorder, because as I mentioned, um, eating disorders can also lead to depression and anxiety, so trying to figure out which one came first can be an important component for treatment. Um, with bulimia, you can see other sort of impulse control problems, issues like cutting, um, suicidality and bulimia is exceptionally high, substance abuse, um, and uh, those comorbidities, comorbidities also make treatment very challenging. Yes? Do you know if the new hospital space available or is pediatric department going to continue so excellent question. So if the new hospital is going to have space available to um, continue this work. So um, I'm very excited that you guys will get an opportunity to meet Dr. LaGrange next week. So Dr. LaGrange is the first um, Benioff chair in pediatrics. So I would say the hospital and the medical center has really identified this program as a priority um, and is putting resources behind it. So um, I'm hoping that we're going to continue to grow and expand um, and that uh, we'll continue to build on some of the research that Dr. LaGrange has done and that we've done in our group already to kind of further um, this program in the future. Yeah. It's, it, that's a good question. So how does our program interact with the WATCH clinic, uh, which is the pediatric um, obesity clinic based in um, the Division of Endocrinology here at UCSF? So um, we used to interact more than we do now. Our ma- chief nutritionist was one of the the founders of the WATCH clinic and was involved in their um, inception and was their chief nutritionist as well. Um, But as our program's been expanding, she's working more with us now. I would say that we we certainly have providers who have gone back and forth between the two clinical programs. um, And there's, I think, future, you know, that there will continue to be more interactions, but we are separate clinical programs at this point. 
Yeah, so it's a good question. So I think that they have a very medical approach where our approach tends to be a bit more behavioral. Um, and so I think they do fit in more to disordered eating. I think um, that at various times they've done um, screening for disordered eating and eating disorders. We've certainly had referrals from them for binge eating disorder um, in our program. Um, so we do have some overlap. Um, they also probably have a higher population of um, purging than they expected to have, so um, frequently those patients are also referred to our clinic. It's a good question. So in terms of school nurses um, and uh, their interaction with our clinic, so we have a nurse in our clinic who is very active with our patients. Um, we are... Um, we have worked very closely with um, school nurses and the wellness centers and the high schools across San Francisco um, and have done, we've done programmatic things for them. Um, this Lowell has a, a food and fitness fair that we've participated in. Um, so we definitely have interactions with the schools. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.